This morning, you can not open your Bibles to Colossians, because we're going to take a couple-week break from our regular verse-by-verse exposition through the book of Colossians. And instead, I want to take a little time here on Sunday mornings to preach through the church. What is the identity of the church? What is the purpose of the church? How are we measuring up? Just some things that we should reflect on every so often. In case you haven't noticed, we've had an intentional agenda throughout the fall, an effort to help shepherd this church to function better as a local church. So on Wednesday nights, we've been setting the one another commands of scripture. We just finished a men's and women's retreat focused on peer discipleship. And we're meeting with people, training leaders up to function more as disciplers. But I want to make sure everyone is being instructed and challenged by what God has to say about the identity and purpose of the church, not just those on Wednesday nights or not just those who went to the retreats. So I want to take some time and preach on these issues. What is the function of the local church? What does God expect us to do? We primarily associate the church with this, our our Sunday morning corporate gathering. And those gatherings are very important in the lives of Christians. That's where the preaching of the word The ordinances, corporate worship, pastoral prayer, greater fellowship, that's where those are found. But these once-per-week corporate gatherings do not represent the totality of what God expects of his people. He has many other expectations for disciples or followers of Jesus Christ. Just take those one another passages of scripture that we've been studying on Wednesday nights. Love one another. Be devoted to one another. Live in harmony with one another. Instruct one another. Serve one another. Bear one another's burdens. Be patient with one another. Forgive one another. Admonish one another. Encourage one another. Spur one another on to love and good deeds. Confess your sins to one another. That list really does keep going. This is what God expects his disciples, disciples of Jesus to do all the time in relation to one another. So you just have to ask yourself, how much of those things are you truly doing on a Sunday morning? I think most of us just keep Sunday mornings pretty casual. Perhaps it's in our nature. Definitely it's in our culture. But our corporate gatherings can be shallow when it comes to these things. You know, the preaching of the word, corporate worship, we do well together. But the, the relational side, the one another side, when we gather corporately, maybe not as much. I'd have to say that the vast majority of Christians in America, if they even attend church every week, they're spectators. They come, they sit down in silence waiting for the show to begin. Their spot in the pew is kind of like a little island. It's closely guarded. Maybe they'll shake a hand or two during the greeting time. That is easily their least favorite part of the service. God forbid they might actually be required to shake the hand of another human being in their church. Thereafter, they sing a few songs, maybe give an offering, listen to a sermon. And after, though, they promptly leave, making sure to avoid eye contact, because you don't want to get, like, roped into a conversation or something. Now, off to their cars, they go where they find sanctuary. It's a safe haven of isolation. And then it's off to go do, well, whatever they want to do. The rest of the week belongs to them. But don't worry, they will revisit this little Christian bubble for 90 minutes the next Sunday. Now, do you think that's what the Lord had in mind for his church for which he died? Do you think that was his plan? 
Do you think he's looking down on people like this who, you know, let's say 99% of their week live as just ordinary worldly people? But hey, that 1% of the week, they're there in that church building. And do you think he says, hey, mission accomplished? Like, that's all I was trying to do here. I just wanted these people to gather up for 90 minutes a week, not really concerned about one another, mostly keeping to themselves. Like, but that's it, mission accomplished. No, I don't think so. Now, look, I'm not trying to make all of you squirm right now, just some of you. (laughs) But at the same time, I, I do have to say, though, overall, I'm actually very encouraged by our local church because I do see people staying and talking and engaging in discipleship, even on a Sunday morning. Many are not just running away, but they're taking time to invest in the lives of others in the local body. It is happening here. There is growth. We've come a long way, and so I'm very encouraged by what we see going on here. But that being said, I always want us to excel still more. I want to help our church to constantly function better as a local church as defined by God. God says we should be doing these things, these one another's. They're not just for pastors. They're for all disciples who've been uniquely gifted by God and enabled to meet the needs of others. This is just how God designed the body to grow up and to be built up. So accordingly, to help us excel still more, and one of the things we're doing come January is eliminating one of our corporate gatherings on Wednesday nights and replacing that with smaller local gatherings or discipleship groups. The intention here is simply to provide an arena for personal discipleship. We get a lot of corporate discipleship, Where you come, you sit, you listen to a message, and and that's good. That's needed. But we need some space for personal discipleship where you not only come and receive, but you also give and contribute and provide according to your giftedness as God has equipped you. We need a place for that. Anyway, all this goes to say, though, since these issues are kind of on the forefront for us, I want to use the pulpit to help shepherd you all and instruct you and bring you along the things we do at this church are guided by scripture. We're not just trying to implement man's wisdom or man's ways, but God's plan for the church. But you have to see that for yourself. I want to help you see from scripture just what God is doing with this thing called the church. What's his plan for the church? What are his purposes? And how can we get on board with that? Not with the things we make it out to be and how church has become in America, but What is the church to God? And so to keep these things in the front of our mind and to help us see God's word clearly for the next several weeks, I just want to preach on the church from scripture. And this morning, to start off as simple as can be, just to help you see the identity and purpose of the church, the identity and purpose of the church. I want you to see what God himself is doing with the church And do you know that the church represents the culmination of God's long-standing plan to reach the world and to bring his blessing on all the nations? God is doing something very special with the church. We need to know that. We need to get on board with that. We need to be partaking in God's plans and purposes for the church, not our own. There's a lot I want to address concerning the church, but today, again, just to, to begin simply and to show you how God's plan for man culminates with the church so that you might better appreciate the identity and purpose of the church. I'll say that again. 
I just want to show you today God's, how God's plan for man culminates with the church that you might better appreciate the identity and the purpose of the church. So off we go. You can open your Bibles now to Genesis chapter 4. Genesis chapter 4. We just want to trace the development of God's plan to reach and redeem the world. As you know, in Genesis 1 and 2, God makes Adam and Eve to live in a perfect world. They're called to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. And if they had done so, it would have resulted in a human race living in perfect harmony with one another in peace and righteousness. It also would have involved man living in perfect harmony with God. Before the fall, God himself dwelt with Adam and Eve in the garden. In Genesis 3.8, in some way, God caused his special presence to dwell with them. And he intended to fellowship with his creation forever. But man's harmony with God didn't last long. And man's harmony with one another never came to be. And that's because all creation was soon marred by sin. Adam and Eve rebelled against God by disobeying his word. And as a result, the world was cursed. They were cursed. They immediately became corrupt even down to their very natures, and that corruption would be passed down to all thereafter. And a byproduct of this corruption was separation. This is one of the main consequences of sin. And God himself is perfectly holy. But when Adam and Eve chose to sin, they became unholy. So they were removed from the garden. They were cast out away from the special presence of God. And so it goes for us. Now all people are born separated from God's presence, being corrupt in their natures as well. And so man's harmony with God was interrupted. And as sin reigned on this cursed world, man's harmony with one another was interrupted as well. And instead, the human race would be marked by division. And the corruption of man gave birth to a whole litter of social sins, Enmity, strife, jealousy, anger, dissensions, factions, envying, bitterness, wrath, clamor, slander, malice, abuse of speech, lies. That list also keeps going. But the heart of man being darkened in sin is inherently selfish and self-centered. And when you have everyone who's primarily driven by themselves, they're just looking out for themselves. Well, of course, a division is going to occur. And even more so. Many would go out, of their way to, uh, go out of their way to harm others who oppose them and their will. And you see this immediately in Genesis chapter 4. Not long after the fall, you have Cain and Abel. The very first generation. They come to bring their offerings before the Lord. The Lord had regard for Abel's offering, for his heart was genuine before the Lord. But he had no regard for Cain's offering, for his deeds were evil, his heart was wicked. And as a result, Cain took this out on his brother. He became angry with his brother. And so verse 8 says in Genesis 4, It came about when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? The answer to that question is, is yes. Yes, you are your brother's keeper. God made you to care for one another. But sin divides such that 
Cain, that the very first generation is already marked by murder. They were so divided. Sin would continue to divide humanity. You can go to Genesis chapter 6. People went on to multiply and fill the earth, but not for the better. Rather, the earth was simply filled with greater wickedness and iniquity. So much so that Genesis 6 verse 5, it says that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. The earth had become so corrupt that God was determined to wipe it out and start over through a global flood. Man had not come to live in peace and harmony and righteousness with God or with one another. Instead, things, things turned out totally the opposite. And the earth was just filled with bloodshed, violence, murder. That was the chief sin leading up to the flood. Look at verse 11 of Genesis 6. It says, the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. The word for violence in Hebrew is Hamas. It's the terror group Hamas gets their name from the word for violence. It often refers to bloodshed. Before the flood, there were no governments, no nations, no police. It truly was a time of anarchy. No one was serving God. No one was serving others. But instead, violence, cruelty, murder went completely unchecked. Can you just imagine living in Well, it's not really a society, just living in anarchy like that, where murder and injustice, there's not even any check and balance on violence and bloodshed. This just shows the depth of the depravity of man's heart. And like God would say later in Genesis 8, 21, that the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. Left to his own depravity, man will multiply sin, divide from others, even take the life of others. So God judged with a flood. Noah and his family were spared and left to repopulate the world, as I'm sure you know. And after the flood, thankfully, it no longer was a time of pure anarchy. Governments were instituted, nations formed, but things didn't get a lot better because the, the wicked heart of man was not changed. So you got Genesis 10 and 11. You can turn to Genesis 11. And as the world is repopulated, nations form. And on the surface, that might seem like a good thing. Like, hey, man is uniting together. Unity, isn't that, isn't that good? But we find that the only thing man unites together for is just to further his rebellion against God. And that's most evident in Genesis chapter 11. Man comes together as one, but it's only in rebellion. All people assemble in the land of Shinar, it would become later Babylon. Now, what's their purpose for assembling as one people? Look at verse 4 of Genesis 11. It says, They said, Come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven. Let us make for ourselves a name. Otherwise, we will be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. We often label this passage the Tower of Babel. It really should be labeled the city and the Tower of Babel. They first wanted to unite together and form a city so that they would not be scattered, that they might 
consolidate their power, their control. They also wanted to make a tower reaching heaven that they might make a name for themselves. They wanted glory. You see here their self-centeredness, self-reliance, pride. They were not concerned with God's name or God's glory, just their own. And they used the power that came from their unity simply to further their own rebellious agenda against God. It's really interesting, though, is that God himself recognizes the power of mankind to accomplish great things when they're united. But, of course, that power becomes a problem when man unites just for evil. And so let's keep reading here. Look at verse 5. It says, The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. The Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have the same language. And this is what they began to do. And now nothing for which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. That's the power of united mankind. But, verse 7, the Lord says, Come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the whole earth, and they stopped building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth. And from there, the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth. God always intended mankind to be unified. Just not like this, though. Not in rebellion. So God had to go beyond simply destroying the tower. In fact, you notice it never says he destroyed the tower. Which doesn't say. Most likely it was left standing as a relic, showing that there is no glory or fame or security apart from God. But instead, God confused their languages and scattered them over the surface of the earth. God knew man would only unite for greater evil and greater rebellion. And so, in a way, as a mercy to keep man from plunging too far into his evil evil and rebellion, that God divided man. And so now, language and nationality arbitrarily divided humankind. None of this was good or right per se. That sin was continuing to wreak havoc on God's creation. That man's harmony with God and man's harmony with one another were not as they should be. But God had a plan to fix things. God always had a plan to redeem this fallen world, to restore it, to reconcile man to himself and man to one another. And now it's really time for God to to kick that plan into motion. And all starts with one man, Abraham. Look at Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. It says, Now the Lord said to Abram, who would later become Abraham, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And I hope you can see here God's desire to bless, but it's not just one person or even one nation. That God desires to bless all the nations, all tribes, all families, all people groups. That blessing involved a vertical and horizontal reconciliation leading to unity 
and peace and righteousness. God had deemed to to start undoing the effects of the fall, to, to bring his blessing on the earth. How, though, were the nations to be blessed through Abraham, through one man? Well, through Abraham, God was going to make a great nation. He was going to multiply the descendants of Abraham into a people. He would give them a land of their own, and then he would make them his own nation, separate from the world. This chosen people then would be a witness for God to the world. This is all an outworking of God's grace. By grace, he called and chose Abraham, and then his son Isaac, and then his son Jacob, who was renamed Israel, and then his 12 sons, who became the 12 tribes of Israel. You see, God was forming a people for his own possession. But look at what God God is doing in this beautiful picture of unity among diversity. To form a people out of 12 tribes, 12 brothers, knit together by blood. God would unite them and then use them as his witness to the world. You know, other nations, other tribes, they constantly fight and divide. But God would use this united people walking in his holy ways to witness to and reach the world. So after a time in Egypt, God called Israel out. He redeemed them. He brought them to Mount Sinai. There he entered into a covenant with his people. He would be their God. They would be his people. He gave them his holy law, which became a part of their national identity. God was their king. Priests led them in sacrifice and worship. This is a big deal. The, the nation of Israel was, was at that time that the greatest step in the outworking of God's plan to restore this world, to redeem this world, to bless all the nations. And though still not complete, God was dwelling in the midst of his people once again. And the whole world was meant to see the blessedness, just the divine and sovereign blessedness of the nation of Israel, that they might come to know and worship Israel's God as the one true God. You also have to know that part of Israel's witness to the nations came through their care for one another. You know, that law that God gave them contained many statutes and ordinances directing the people to live in harmony with one another. You know, the command to love your neighbors yourself didn't come from Jesus. It came from Israel's law. That God directed them to be merciful toward one another, to care for the orphan, the widow, those in need, to, to execute justice on the land, to take care of one another. It was not supposed to be just every man for himself. There were to be a community of God's people living in peace with one another and walking in God's ways. That, if that ever happened, that would be a profound witness to the nations because they are not like that. And that was the ideal. That was the desire. That was the plan for the nation of Israel. That through a unified and holy Israel, all the nations would be blessed and reconciled to God. But if you know your Old Testament, you know that never came to be. That didn't happen. Why not? Because Israel was not unified and Israel was not holy. They fell short of their calling. Throughout the history of Israel, they did not walk according to God's ways. They did not keep his law. And most of them were just unbelieving. 
They were no different than the wicked nations around them. And so it's not surprising then, what did they do? They divided. Because sin divides. And these 12 tribes frequently separated. And they were supposed to be a brotherhood. But sin continually tore them apart. And throughout the Old Testament, it's just littered with all these tales of division and strife and warfare even among the 12 tribes. For example, one time in Judges, we learned that all the tribes, they nearly completely eliminated the tribe of Benjamin. The tribe of Benjamin almost went extinct because of internal warfare. Only 600 lived to repopulate the tribe of Benjamin. Also, after a very brief time as a united nation, you know, they divided into two. Ten tribes in the north, two in the south. They would never be truly reunified. But this is just the way of man. When sin reigns in the heart, it's deeper than blood. It runs deeper than blood. Not even kinsmanship can unite and bring God's blessing to the world. But what do you know? God was still not done. He was still working out his plan to restore the world, to undo the curse, to reconcile man to himself and man to one another. And God was still going to usher in a kingdom of peace and righteousness on the world. But God always knew there's really only one way that could happen. That the sin problem had to be dealt with. This wedge of sin that, that separates us from God and us from one another, that had to be removed. You know, when sin reigns, all unity is superficial. Not even blood is thicker than sin. And because of the fall, our ultimate allegiance is to ourself. Not God, not others, not even our family, but to ourself. But God was going to do something about the sin problem, and that even included our sin nature. Now, of course, we know where that answer is found. God's real answer came in the ultimate seed of Abraham, the true Israelite, Christ Jesus. That God determined to use a second Adam to redeem and restore this fallen world. He sent his own son incarnate into the world. And Jesus came and lived a perfect life. He lived in complete obedience to all of God's ways and commands. But you know, he still died. Which strikes us as odd because the wages of sin is death. He was sinless. He was the only one who never deserved death. But he still died. Why? Well, on the cross, Jesus was dying for the sins of his people. He was paying the full debt of our sin before God. All of our transgressions that we've heaped up before God, which eternally separate us from God, on the cross, Jesus was paying for and just taking out of the way. But that's not all. On the third day, he rose again to newness of life. And now God's salvation in Christ comes with new life, new birth. And for those who are in Christ by faith, God gives them new hearts, no longer cursed or corrupted or chained to sin, but free and enabled to follow him. That those who are in Christ are truly new creatures. The old things have passed away. New things have come. So look, first and foremost, I would urge you to see your sin and, and turn to this Savior. I mean, what kind of havoc has sin wreaked in your own life? Then how many relationships do you have that are divided because of sin? 
We all have blame. And ultimately, our sin has divided us from our creator God. Amazingly, he offers mercy and reconciliation, but these are are only found in Christ. And you need to turn from your sin and, and cry out to God for mercy through Christ. He will hear that cry and save. He can redeem you. Do, do this today. And when you do that, it marks the beginning of a new life. You're born again. You gain a new identity. You become a Christian, which is just to say a follower, a disciple of Jesus Christ. But now, but now listen, this is kind of the point we've been working up to, that your new identity as a Christian is by definition, a corporate identity. Do you realize that? If you follow Christ, if you're really a, a disciple of Christ, it's by definition, that identity means you're not alone. It's a corporate identity. No one is saved to be alone. By God's will and design, all who follow Christ by faith are immediately thereafter joined together in one body, the body of Christ, which we just call the church. And now through Jesus and his church, God was going to finally bring about his blessing on all the nations. You know, he made this claim that the church is the culmination of God's plan to reach the world, to bring his blessing and reconciliation to the world. You need to see that. You need to see how the church fits into this plan, how the church is meant to pick up where Israel failed. Christ has come. His is the victory. To him belongs salvation. But now the rest of the world still needs to know and hear about the good news of his gospel. And God has simply deemed to use this new people to that end. Christ himself referred to this new people as his church. The word church, ecclesia, simply means the called out ones. It's an assembly of those who've been called out to God and made separate. And in a sense, Israel was a called out assembly, but the New Testament church is different. What united Israel together? It was first birth, human blood, and kinsmanship. But that's not enough because sin reigned, division occurred, and their witness failed. But now think, what unites the church together though? It is... The second birth, it's Christ's blood and the Holy Spirit. Those are enough. Those are sufficient to bring about what God intends. Now, obviously, though forgiven in Christ, we're still sinners. And we still await the fullness of God's kingdom reign where all sin will be removed. That's still future. But even in the present church age, you need to see what God is doing. In dealing with the essence of the sin problem through Christ, he's opened up a new and living way for man to be reconciled to God, to his creator, to live in harmony with the creator as intended. That God has even come back to dwell in the midst of his people once again, now more than ever. Not in a temple made with hands, but he he dwells in our very hearts through the Holy Spirit. That we in the church get to experience a A profound reconciliation with God that has never been known to this degree before. 
And furthermore, in Christ, God has also opened up the way for man to, to genuinely be reconciled to one another, to also live in harmony with one another as originally intended. And that is God's intention with this people called the church. They are to live as a community of the redeemed, disciples of Jesus Christ who follow his ways, resulting in peace and love and righteousness multiplied on the earth, the body built up, and the rest of the world reached with the gospel and Christ's blessing. You know, you see the immediate outworking of God's plan with the beginning of the church. You can pop over to Acts chapter 2, similar to what we read this morning. In Acts 2, after Christ ascended, he promised the Holy Spirit would come down to fill and knit together this people. And that happens. The Holy Spirit comes down on the 12 apostles gathered in Jerusalem. And when that happens, there's a sign. There's a sign that shows the Holy Spirit has truly come. The Spirit's invisible. But a sign displayed the reality of this movement. And what was the sign that the Spirit had come? Well, the apostles spoke in tongues. And these were real human languages, such that all the Jews who were assembled there from throughout the Roman Empire, they heard them speaking in their own native tongues. It's an amazing sign, supernatural. But I'm not sure if you've ever wondered, why this sign? Why not enable all the apostles to fly? Would have been a pretty cool sign that the Spirit has come, right? The Spirit, Spirit flying, you can make a connection there. Or why not enable all of them to like walk on water or, or something else? Why did God choose as the sign that the Spirit has finally come to have them speak in different languages? Well, because God was showing what he's going to do through this new church. The church is the community of the redeemed. Those who are, by definition, filled with that same spirit. And God's spirit has come to regenerate man and also to regather man. He's come to unite man. In the church, God was beginning to reverse the curse and God was beginning to reverse Babel. Remember, the only way man united together is in the past, truly one, a sea of humanity, all as one. It was just for greater sin. It was just for greater rebellion. And God had to scatter man. God had to confuse his languages because he was only going to use the power of unity for evil. But now that sin has been conquered in Christ, God has sent his spirit to start that work of regenerating people and then regathering people back into one body. And that's not just one nation anymore. It's, it's all peoples, all nations, all tribes, all languages are called into this one body, the church. And that's what the church is. It's the redeemed from all the nations in one body. When you come to believe in Jesus, you are instantly united to him as your head, you're part of his body, but you realize that also means that just at the same time, you're also united to everyone else who's been united to him as their head. You're, you're united to everyone else in the body. And this is the fundamental unity of the church. You might wonder like, why? Why is this such a big deal? 
Why did God do this? Why not just save us and leave us alone? Why is the Lord doing this? And we're exploring this morning how the church is the culmination of God's plan for mankind. It's the outworking of his salvation plan to bring blessing on the world. And this really comes out when you see the identity and purpose of the church. So what is the church's identity? We've already really covered it. It's this new covenant people of God. It's the body of the redeemed, all knit together as one in Christ. The church is, is a unified body of Christ. But you see, this unity is also tied to the church's purpose. So what is the purpose? What's the function of this church? Okay, God wanted a united body. Great. Why? Well, here there are two main answers. And both, you'll see, are completely dependent on the church's unity. For one, internal growth. Internal growth. And God knows In his design, man united together can accomplish great things. But now though, being redeemed and filled with his spirit, man can finally unite together for good. And the good work that God has given his church to do is is growth, to grow up into the image of Christ. That we are called to continually and progressively mature into Christ's image. That is how we in the church internally glorify God. To do this, though, requires one another. I mean, either. <laughs> Let me clarify, in case you weren't paying attention. That was a perfect setup. That could have been. That could have been so much worse. <laughs> Well, you know, all the one another's that we mentioned before, that list of one another's, those are all actually functions of our spiritual growth. That's how we grow. You know, in saving us, God made us mutually interdependent, meaning you're not going to grow alone. That's just by design. And we need others to teach us, to encourage us, to help us, to rebuke us, to admonish us, to counsel us, to pray for us. And we need to do that to others as well this mutual interdependence. Spiritual growth is not a solo sport. It's kind of like we learned last week from Ephesians 4, that it's only when all the saints, not just the pastor, when all the saints are being equipped and serving with their gifts, that's when the body of Christ is built up. So when are you going to realize that your own individual spiritual growth is completely tied into the proper functioning of the church with all of its members. Like, we're in this together. We're either going to grow together or not at all. And so the first function of the church is internal growth. That's why God knit us together, internal growth. And the second function is external witness. External witness. God's strategy to reach the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ now goes through a united church. I mean, look, if God wanted to, he could just send an angel to preach the gospel to every person individually. He could have done that. But in his will, he deemed to use redeemed people as his witness to the ends of the earth. And for that, you need to realize how the union of the body is is so essential to that witness. 
want you to imagine an early church assembly. And sitting in a chair is as a rich Jewish male. And sitting next to him is a female Gentile slave. Now back then, that's, that's three strikes and you're out. Female, Gentile, slave. That's the last person a rich Jewish male would ever be caught dead sitting next to. And those people back then, they had literally zero unity. Nothing but animosity toward one another for various reasons. But then, you know, scripture comes along and says something like this. Galatians 3.28, talking about those in the church. It says, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. That's obviously not obliterating all distinctions, as if there are no more males or females or Jews or Greeks. There are. It's just saying that our union with Christ is greater than these distinctions. The tie that binds us is more powerful than the things which separate us. And the blood of Christ runs thicker than nationality or social status or, or a gender. And so could you just imagine that two people as different as this could ever live together in harmony as equals? They're praying for one another. They're serving for another. They're caring for one another. I don't know. Maybe the, the woman has children who are going to be taken away from her and, and sold as slaves. And this rich Jewish man who used to absolutely hate everything about this woman for what she represented, though, now in Christ, he says to her, you know, Christ laid down his life for me. I'm going to lay down my life for you. I'm going to sell my goods and possessions. I'm going to redeem your, your whole family. I mean, what is that? That's supernatural. That doesn't just happen in the world. I mean, just even having Jews and Gentiles together in the early church was a miracle in itself. But then having them live as one and even caring for one another, that is supernatural. And you see, this supernatural unity, it is the platform, it's the greatest platform for the church's witness. Now, granted, the church at times still falls short. And when sin gets back in there and reigns, division can occur. But that is not by design. We are called to love one another as ourselves. You know, at the height of sin's division, man will take the life of another. But at the height of Christ's salvation, man will lay down his own life for another. And that's what we're called to do. And when that actually takes place, though, when people who are just, they're laying in many ways, just laying down their lives, counting others as more important than themselves. When that actually happens in an assembly, and the Lord uses that as the most powerful platform for the gospel. Listen to John 17, 21. Christ's prayer for, for us, for his future disciples. The night before he died, he prayed, John 17, 21, that they may all be one. Even as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us. And then he says, so that the world may believe that you sent me. You see, a united church is in God's plan that the most powerful platform for Christ's gospel. And so what is the identity of the church? It's the united body of Christ's disciples. And what is the purpose of the church? 
Internally, we use that unity to grow. And externally, we use that unity to witness. Both of these, though, are completely dependent on our oneness in Christ. Now, I hope this little study enables you to better see and appreciate the church as the culmination of God's plan to create what he always intended. A brotherhood of man, free from sin, living in harmony with God, and living in harmony with one another. And although we still await the fullness of that plan, right now the church's mission is to partake in it. So you have to ask yourself, do you share this identity? Are you a disciple of Jesus Christ by faith? And if so, are you alone? Are you kind of on your own? Are you flying solo? Are you detached from the church? That would be a problem, right? That is not God's plan for his body. And also that would short circuit the church's purpose. If you're not intertwined with a local church, then you're, you're not contributing to the building up of Christ's body and you're not contributing to the witness of the body, at least not as you should be. And chances are it even means your own spiritual growth has been stunted because you're, you're cut off, you're separate, you're alone. I mean, just how on board are you with the church's identity and purpose? And look, if your Christianity is merely a 90-minute-a-week engagement, and that's it, can you really say you're living out the identity and purpose of the church for which you were saved? And do you think that's what the Lord had in mind for his people? And to the contrary, after Pentecost, what were the first believers like? We read it this morning. If you're still in Acts 2, look at verse 46. The first believers, it says, they were day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple, breaking bread from house to house. They were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. And we wonder today, why isn't God adding as many numbers to those being saved? And meanwhile, we want to spend as little time as possible with the church family. And we want our me time. Can't be bothered with all this commitment. But Christ's church is called to gather, not to scatter. And in the weeks to come, we're going to see even more why this is so vastly important for, for many reasons. For now, though, just, just let this very simple lesson sink in. Let it confront you. Let it challenge you. We are called to gather, not to scatter. Hebrews 10.25 even adds, telling us not to forsake our own assembling together, as is the habit of some. If we are to partake in God's plan to bless our lives by his grace and bless the world, it's only going to happen when we gather, not when we scatter. That's just simply God's will and plan and design. And so now I'm not going to tell you to do anything. This is not some pitch to help you attend Sunday nights or Wednesday nights or growth groups. Is that even enough? Just let God's plan and purpose to reach the world through United Church, let that start to reach you. Let it prick your conscience. Let it make you uncomfortable. Let it change you. How you choose to respond, we'll just trust that to the Spirit's conviction. But if we all simply take steps closer together as a local church, whatever that looks like, you know, the more we gather instead of scatter, 
Well, the more this body is going to be built up into the image of Christ, and the more we're going to have a powerful witness to the lost, the very lost world around us. And I want that. And I trust and hope you want that. And so just leave here this morning, just considering your own part in the church with his identity and purpose, that we may grow, the world may know God, he would be glorified. Now let's pray together. Our gracious Father, we do pray that you, you help us, this little local church, to, to do our part, to be functioning as you have created and designed. And that's a body that's one in Christ, by faith in him, the only Savior, the only one who can redeem and reconcile and regenerate and bring us back to you. And that same Savior, though, has intended to bring us together, uh, to knit us into his unified body. And that's for a great purpose as well. That's how we grow spiritually. That's how the world will come to know you. It's from a people who preaches the gospel, but it's backed up by lives that actually believe the gospel and that love the Lord and, and live like it. So, Lord, sometimes we need to be confronted with these truths and reminded, even challenged. But I pray we respond by your spirit and just drawing nearer to you and to your body and trust that you will do great things. We pray for your blessing on us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.